Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Well, earlier today, we got the release of the most recent FOMC minutes. And once again, the Federal Reserve is pretending that the economy is a lot stronger than it is because they're continuing to dismiss the very weak first quarter data as being weather related. They keep talking about transitory effects, which in general means the weather. That was the only thing that was really transitory. I don't know that it's the port strike or the strong dollar. It's been the weather that's been the scapegoat du jour. Uh, And not just today, but it's been the scapegoat for some time when the economy is much weaker in the first quarter. In fact, now we're having a lot of talk from the Fed. In fact, earlier in the week, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco They came out and they said that they think the GDP really grew at, I don't know, 1.8 percent in the first quarter, as opposed to the 0.2 percent that was originally released, which is likely to be revised down to a big negative number. But the San Francisco Fed is basically saying, hey, who cares? Because we don't think the numbers are accurate because the seasonal adjustments are not big enough. And so they want to double seasonally adjust it. And therefore, they can manufacture a lot more growth. Well, hell, maybe we'll have to start triple adjusting or quadruple adjusting the numbers until we get a number that we think is correct. Right. If the data doesn't work, then fix it. In fact, now they're going back in time over the past 30 or 40 years, and they've concluded that every first quarter or in general, the first quarters tend to be weaker uh, than forecast and weaker than the average for the remainder of the year. And therefore, they think there must be some flaw in the way they're measuring the first quarter. And so now they're going to fix that. They're going to try to come up with a way to measure it to get a bigger number. Now, maybe over the course of the four seasons, maybe there's a reason that first quarter GDP uh, comes in lower. And so why does the government have to fix that? If that's what it is, that's what it is. Now, they're talking about changing the way it's seasonally adjusted, but I don't even know why we need to seasonally adjust because we're really looking about looking at GDP on an annual basis. Yes, we measure it quarterly, but the bottom line is we're really looking at yearly increases in GDP, right? It's not simply what happens quarter to quarter because the seasonality of the numbers has to do with weather patterns or holidays and where they fall that may, uh, you know, cause there to be a tendency to have production or consumption vary somewhat, you know, seasonally. Well, fine. It's all going to come out in the wash when you look at the GDP for the entire year, right? It's only when you're trying to measure what's actually happening in the economy quarter to quarter 
that you might have a need to seasonally adjust it. But who really cares to see the problem is once you let the government come in and monkey with the numbers by adjusting it, then you you open up, uh, you know, the floodgates to uh, manipulation. And now you have sub- subjectivity thrown in there. Why can't we just accept the data? And if we know there's a tendency uh, for certain quarters to be stronger or weaker, then we'll just accept that. And that'll be part of the estimates. But the the studies are showing that, hey, the first quarter tends to be weaker and the economists are scratching their heads, according to the articles I've read, and they have no idea why. Well, I can throw out some reasons. One, right, certainly when it comes to the expectations, right, how much analysts tend to be off, right? Wall Street analysts and general Fed analysts tend to be optimistic. And I think they're the most optimistic at the beginning of a year, right? So if a certain year GDP isn't quite up to what you expected, everybody is always optimistic for the year ahead. Everybody issues very rosy forecasts. And so it makes sense to me that the first quarter would miss estimates more than other quarters because that's when people are the most optimistic, right? They they celebrate the new year. They just finish uh, the Christmas and their holiday parties and everybody's excited and everybody is optimistic about the new year. And so they build those biases into their forecasts. And so then more likely you're going to be disappointed because the optimism turns out to be unfounded. And in fact, the studies did show that the weakness in the first quarter is particularly pronounced uh, since 2010, that they do show those weaknesses going back into the mid 80s. But the difference, the significant difference or statistical significance is much greater recently. Now, obviously, nothing has changed. We haven't changed the way we do the seasonal adjustments. So maybe it's just that the economy is much weaker now than it was in the past. And maybe people are just more optimistic about a recovery that has continued to elude us. But it's more than that, right? Think about this. The GDP is very heavily influenced by consumer spending. And consumers spend a lot of money in the fourth quarter. Right. It's the holidays. People take vacations. They buy presents. They decorate the house. They do a lot of things. They have parties. Right. So maybe by January and February, people want to chill out a little bit. They've got to recoup. They've spent a lot of money. They've partied up. They want to hibernate through the winter a little bit. So it might make sense that a GDP that is so you know denominated or dominated, rather, is the word, by consumer spending that the consumers would want a little reprieve. Right. So the fact that the first quarter might reflect that, I mean, why are economists scratching their heads? To me, it seems kind of obvious that you're going to get that reaction. And also these same studies are showing how you generally have a stronger second quarter. So to the extent that there is some economic activity that is postponed in the first quarter, either due to holidays or the weather, that it is made up for in the second quarter. So big deal. Why does the government now have to go back to the drawing board and try to come up with a new way to measure GDP with a specific goal of getting a bigger number? Because that's the way the government works. They always reverse engineer things. They come up with new ways to measure. And the goal is always the same. Whenever they're measuring something that's supposed to be a big number, right? Like GDP, the bigger, the better, supposedly. So if they're measuring something that's supposed to be big, they want to cook the books. They want to change the way you calculate it to get a big number. 
And they, in fact, recently they changed GDP anyway. They started to throw in uh, inventory spending as investment and money you spend, uh, you know, filming motion pictures is now, you know, considered an investment. If you write a script for a TV, that's now, show, that's now counted as investment spending. All kinds of nonsense for the specific purpose of making the economy look bigger than it really is. Right? And so when the numbers are supposed to be big, they find a way to make them big. Now, when numbers are supposed to be small, right, like when it comes to inflation, right, a small number is good. They tried to figure out how to add things up to get a smaller number. Although now the government is saying that a small number is bad, right? But of course, in the past, we all knew that when it came to prices going up, uh, the lower the better. Uh, unemployment is another situation where they want a low number. So they find ways to change the way they calculate unemployment. How do they do that? Well, let's find people who are who are unemployed, but figure out how not to count them. Well, let's say they've given up working. They're disgruntled. Okay, let's not count those guys. Oh, let's say somebody took a part-time job while he's still looking for work. Well, let's not count him as being unemployed either. Because after all, even though he's looking for a job, he's got one. You know, maybe he's looking for a full-time job, but he's still got a part-time job. So technically, not unemployed, right? At one point, that person would have been unemployed. Now they're not. So this is what they're doing now again. They're going to go back to the drawing board. They're going to find a new way to calculate GDP so that they get a bigger number. But the bottom line is, no matter how they try to paint this thing or wrap this up in a bow, the economy is weakening. The standard of living of the average American is going down. Right. The quality of living is going down. More people have to work to support a family and fewer people can get jobs. Right. So the, the, the quality of life, the standard of living is going down. It doesn't matter you know, how the government tries to package this up. You know, I thought it was interesting, too, that a lot of analysts are reading the Fed's optimism. Right. The Fed comes out and says, hey, the first quarter really isn't as bad as everybody thinks. Right. As meaning that they really want to raise interest rates because they're trying to tell people that the economy is stronger, that if they were if they really didn't want to raise interest rates, they would be worried. Oh, no, the economy is weak. We're concerned. Right. They would want to express that concern because then the markets would know not to expect a rate hike. But because the Federal Reserve is telling everybody not to look at the weak economic data. Right. Don't pay attention to that man behind uh, the curtain, right? It's this powerful Wizard of Oz that because they are, you know, calling attention to the fact that they don't believe the weakness, they want everybody to know that they're going to raise rates. I don't think that's what they want at all. I think they just don't want to admit that the economy is weak because if they admitted that, they would have to admit that their policy was a failure and that, and that their economic forecasts are wrong. So instead, they want to deny what should be obvious. They want to blame the weak data on some transitory effects like the weather. And they want to pretend that the economy is stronger than it is. Not because they want to raise rates. They don't. But they don't want to admit how weak the economy is either. I think they want to continue to pretend the economy is strong and that rate hikes are coming eventually, but just not yet. Because even though the economy is strong, we got to keep rates at zero because we don't want to risk, you know, derailing this great recovery. Right. And plus, you know, inflation's still too low. We want to make sure that we've, you know, dodged that deflation, bull, uh, you know, uh, um, bullet. And so we just got to be extra careful. They, they don't want to come out and admit how weak the economy is. But eventually they're going to have to because we're going to get a weak second quarter, too, most likely based on the economic data that has come out thus far on on April and, and May.
And that's not going to be about seasonal adjustments. And potentially there could be a bit of a bounce in the second quarter over the first quarter, which traditionally seems to happen. But I think when you look at the two quarters together, and of course, when you look at them together, the seasonality is smoothed out because now you've got six months and not and not three. Right. Uh, And we get a weak number. Then the Fed is going to have to finally admit that there's something wrong. And then, you know, you're going to start to see uh, a m- more adjustments in what people are expecting. But, you know, we did get economic data that came out during the week, some of it being mixed. I mean, first, we did get the housing market expectation index, which came out weak. And this is in the month of May. It dropped to 54 from 56 in April. And this was the fifth time in six months that that builder uh, expectation. It's an, it's an index of home builder sentiment. And that's the fifth time in six months that that estimate has come out or the number has come out below estimates, right? But then we got some stronger than expected housing data that came out on Tuesday with housing starts, which surged to, I think, what, a six or seven year high. Now, remember, we had some very, very weak numbers in the last few months, particularly February, which was a disaster. Uh, so we probably were catching up. So I wouldn't read much into this. And of course, I also think that the the level of building, and it was, you know, single family homes, a lot of stuff starting in the Northeast. So maybe some of that was due to the fact that they were able to start more homes now that the weather cleared up. But I think that a lot of these homes that are gonna, that are being produced may not be able to be sold at a profit. Maybe this is kind of a last gasp when it comes to home starts and permits that you just have this this optimism that is really not warranted but is still lingering as people are still holding out hope for a a recovery. But, you know, one of the bigger signs that the economy is weakening uh, came from Walmart, which came out with their earnings on Tuesday and way below estimates, not only were their earnings down, but their revenues were down. Just a really bad report. The stock was down maybe 4 or 5%. It's now down, I think, uh, 16% from its record high that it set in January when everybody was so optimistic about this recovery, right? And everybody thought that consumers were going to take their windfall from cheap gas and, and spend it you know, at Walmart. Well, it didn't happen, right? Walmart had a very, very bad uh, quarter and it's probably only going to get worse for Walmart, particularly now that they're raising their wages, uh, and so you're going to have rising costs as well as slowing revenues. But the interesting thing is Walmart blamed their weak earnings on the strong dollar. I mean, unbelievable. And Wall Street seemed to buy this because I read a lot of reports about how the strong dollar was hurting uh, Walmart. Now, I guess people think, oh, yeah, the strong dollar is bad. So they just accept that excuse. But, you know, it doesn't work for Walmart because Walmart is an importer. They are not an exporter. They earn some earnings overseas, but it's a drop in the bucket. Almost all of Walmart's earnings are in America. So while a strong dollar may hurt an exporter, it helps an importer. Walmart is the biggest importer in this country. Walmart imports more stuff than any other company. And a strong dollar means that Walmart can import stuff for less money. Now, true, some of the stuff they're importing comes from China, and so that exchange rate is fixed. 
but not everything they import comes from China. They import things from other countries as well. And the strength of the dollar means that they can import that stuff for less money, which means if they don't cut their prices, if they keep their prices the same, they have better margins because their costs have gone down. But what they can also do sometimes when they can buy things cheaper because the dollar is stronger, they can reduce their prices and generate additional top line revenue because now consumers can buy more when you reduce the price. And if they sell more, uh, then they can earn more profits because they do more volume. So any way you slice it, Walmart should have benefited from a strong dollar directly by importing things with dollars. But also the big drop in gasoline prices, which happened in the first quarter, was largely the effect of the strong dollar. And the cheap gas prices, if any company was going to benefit from increased spending as a result of cheap gas prices, it would be Walmart. After all, Walmart's customers are very sensitive to gas prices, right? They're, they're middle-class people. They're living paycheck to paycheck. And if they spend less of their paycheck on gasoline, they have more left over to buy other things at Walmart, right? If you're uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, if you're Bergdorf Goodman, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not your customer uh, saves money buying gas. It's not the money that he saves on gas that is being spent at Bergdorf Goodman's or Saks Fifth Avenue or Neiman Marcus, right? This is discretionary money. They're going to spend the same amount. They don't care what it costs to fill up their tank, right? Wealthy people, doesn't matter. But the middle class or the the, the poor, working poor, the people who shop all the time at Walmart, they are very sensitive not only to prices, but to what they have to spend on necessities like gasoline. So Walmart should have had good numbers, right? Both from the windfall from cheap gas as their customers spent the savings and from the impact of the strong dollar reducing their cost of goods, increasing their profits. None of this happened. Despite all the things that should have worked in Walmart's favor, they still reported bad numbers. And the only reason for that is because the underlying economy is weak. But nobody wants to accept that. They'd rather accept a ridiculous excuse like Walmart's earnings were hurt by the strong dollar. Now, is it possible? Maybe they had some kind of weird hedging accident or they had some kind of blow up in their FX desk. I don't know. I didn't hear anything about that. I mean, it is possible that they could have screwed up some of their trading in foreign exchange and, and lost money that way. But even there, that might not have been big enough to offset what should have been a huge benefit to them in their overall business. And I think that Walmart did benefit from a strong dollar. It's just that the negatives from the weak economy offset it. So even though their customers were helped by cheap gas prices and a strong dollar, because the economy is so weak fundamentally, because jobs are so scarce and so low paying, uh, that the underlying weakness overwhelmed the benefit of cheap gas prices, which, by the way, is already going away because now gasoline prices are rising and not falling. Hey, you know, speaking of prices, I mean, I, I always talk about prices going up. And I just noticed, uh, because I happen to stumble across the price increase, I have uh, Sirius XM satellite radio. And effective January 1st of this year, they raised their prices by 6%. 6% in one year. I mean, that's a pretty big jump, right? Much, much higher than the official rate of inflation. But, you know, I guess no one at the Fed listens to satellite radio. They don't pay attention to these types of things. But this is routinely happening across the board 
in the U.S. economy. Prices continue to go up uh, despite the fact uh, that uh, that the government pretends otherwise. Then speaking about prices, L.A., the largest city now in the country to pass the $15 an hour minimum wage. What idiots. 14 to 1, right, was the vote. There's one councilman in Los Angeles that's not a moron. Everybody else voted to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, at least they were smart enough to stagger it over five years. So the first increase doesn't even happen until July of next year. So it's over a year away. And the main reason that they do stuff like this is because they don't want the layoffs to happen right away. Right. So if they have something kick in in a year, employers can prepare for it more slowly. So you don't lay everybody off right away. You just lay them off uh, slowly over time. Right. And so you don't necessarily connect the dots between the layoffs and the unemployment. And also a lot of it will be factored where businesses simply don't hire people that they might otherwise have hired. And you never can measure that, right? If, if someone decides I'm not going to open up a business because the minimum wage, well, those jobs are not lost because they never existed. But the minimum wage is what prevented them from coming into existence. Now, how badly the workers of Los Angeles get hurt really depends on what the neighboring cities do. Because obviously, some of the businesses that might have opened up in L.A., they can just go on the outskirts. Uh, and that's unfortunate because now people have longer commutes, which in effect lowers their their real income if they have to spend more money and time getting to work. But if some of the surrounding cities uh, are dumb enough to implement the same problem, then, you know, they really drive uh, jobs out of, you know, a good chunk of Southern California. Because I do believe that there are a lot of businesses now looking at a 67 percent increase in labor costs that are going to have to make some big changes in their business plans, either shutting down completely or, you know, automating, you know, there's a company up in uh, San Francisco, I forget the name, but they already make these machines that make hamburgers. And I think they could turn out like two or 300 of these gourmet hamburgers an hour, and they do a much better job than a human being with less space. And, you know, this is what is going to happen. You know, I hear all the coverage about this. Oh, you know, businesses are complaining. Is it going to hurt businesses? Sure, it will hurt businesses. It'll be a nuisance or an annoyance for businesses. But who it's really going to hurt are workers, right? Because what does $15 minimum wage actually do, right? The $15 now minimum wage says that if you're an unskilled worker and you want to get a job in Los Angeles, you're going to have to convince an employer to pay you $15 an hour. That's going to be a tough sell, right? You don't got any skills. You can't do much and you want $15 an hour. Plus, you know, there's the payroll taxes and other benefits, workman's comp. And then of course, there's always the liability that you could sue your employer. So that's asking a lot of an employer if you've got very little in return. And you know, a lot of these uh, employers of low-skilled workers now have a choice to make because now they can look at automation. They have machines, uh, outsourcing, robots, and they always have to do a cost-benefit analysis. You know, what does it cost to buy a robot, you know, over the course of time. I mean, it's I have to spend money up front and then, the, the you know, it's going to depreciate. But what are the costs? And I compare that to the benefit. And the benefit is not having to hire somebody. And the more expensive you make it to hire people, the greater the benefit there is for not hiring people. And so what happens is you end up destroying these jobs. And now maybe the liberals think, oh, this is horrible. You know, we have to punish these employers who don't pay people $15 an hour. Well, would they rather they not hire those people? I mean, somebody has to hire uh, low-skilled workers. 
I mean, what we want to say is if you hire low-skilled workers, we're going to punish you for doing it. Well, maybe what ends up happening is nobody will hire unskilled workers because we've made it you know, a crime to do that. We want to target people for vilification and punishment and taxes. We want to say, look, if you want to hire an unskilled person, you better overpay them. You better pay them some living wage. Well, the response is, well, then I'm not going to hire them at all. And so the question is, is it better for unskilled people to never get jobs or to work for low wages? Personally, I think working for low wages is better than being unemployed at high wages. And of course, if you're a normal person and you start working for low wages, you're not going to keep working for low wages because as you work, you're going to, you know, you're going to get experience. You're going to learn on the job. You're going to become more valuable. You're going to get skills and your wages will rise accordingly. The problem is if you make it illegal for these people to get a job because, you know, you, you raise the bar too high, then they never increase their skills. They're always unskilled and they're always unemployable. Hey, while I'm on the subject of employment, we are hiring uh, at my company Shift Gold. We need to hire another broker. Business is picking up a little bit thanks to all the bad things the U.S. government is doing. So we are getting a little pickup, and we need to hire another person. It's not a minimum wage job. It's a commission job, and you can earn a lot of money. In fact, if you're good at it, if you're hardworking, uh, you put in the time, you can make six figures. So there's a great opportunity here for the right person. What you're basically doing is you're talking to my followers, people like yourselves, and you're talking to them about buying physical gold and silver, and you're helping them do that. Uh, So there's a lot of work. Uh, But it's a rewarding job. I mean, if you believe in what you're doing, you're helping people. You're helping people protect their wealth uh, by owning gold and silver. You're not ripping everybody off. We're not doing overpriced collectibles. We have a very valuable service uh, that we're providing in helping people get gold and silver. And we're doing it at a very, very competitive price. So you can be very uh, proud of what you're doing. Uh, If you're interested, we only have room for one person. And by the way, the office is in New York City. So if you're not in driving distance in New York City, it's probably not a great opportunity for you unless you're willing to move. Uh, but you can you know, go visit the website, shiftgold.com. But you can also call Matt Maiello. He's the director of sales over there. It's 800-465-3160. That's 800-465-3160. Ask for Matt Maiello. Tell me you, you heard about this job opportunity uh, at, uh, at Shift Gold. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com 
and download it now. The powerful case for silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download the powerful case for silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com. 